Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah. Amen. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Well, this is a throwback to Parsha Shoftim. Shouts out to Ish Pela. This is his Torah portion. Well, I am very overwhelmed and I am praying that Hashem helps me with this. I have no idea why, but this is going to be called the hand-washing crucifixion wedding. Hand-washing crucifixion wedding. So... Why am I doing this and why am I so crazy? Okay, so anyway, we can we we can do this. All right, Hashem, let's let's do it. I'm ready, I'm not scared. Okay, so let's go back to Parsha Shof team. I am very overwhelmed right now. Okay, so here's the deal. Let's let's get a, a survey of the scene. All right, so everybody suit up. Let's fly around the site before we go into the site. So there's this uh, this mitzvah about the decapitated decapitated calf called the Egla Ha'arufa. So the calf uh, who has to get decapitated because the elders of the city are have found that there's a corpse in the field. And uh, they're going to have to uh, go out and investigate uh, what happened and all that kind of stuff. Well, the thing is, there are so many implications to the sacrifice of Messiah. Because when you talk about, and again, this word, I know it's very like, like, why are we doing this right at the beginning? That's how we start. The the word for taking off the head takes us all the way back to Parasha Kitisa. Literally, Kitisa et Rosh. Like, to lift up or to take off the head of the Aleph Tav is literally one of the ways to interpret that phrase. So how in the world does this mitzvah connect to Messiah's crucifixion? Because his crucifixion parallels this mitzvah that we're going to talk about from Parsha Shoftim. Now, it's important to remember that I am not doing this because Mashiach's offering needs to match all of the other sacrifices and things in the Torah. However, understanding that everything in Torah points back to the original Akedah, which Mashiach was offered at that one as well, just not in the form of a man. But Yitzhak was there. And so all of the offerings are actually, um, what do they call those? Uh, facets. There we go. Like a diamond has facets. So the Akedah is the giant diamond with all these different facets. So within the Akedah, you can find all of the temple service and you can find the red heifer and you can find the Egla Ha Arufa. So, all right, that's the scene. Let's get the coordinates and fly in. So let's start 
in Devarim chapter 21. And I'm reading from the teachings of the Talmud. So just uh, here we go. Let's go ahead and start from, you know what? Let's go ahead and start from verse one. We're going to read through it and we're going to go. All right, here we go. So an unsolved murder and the axed heifer. Okay, it says, whoa, getting a little crazy over here. All right. If a corpse will be found on the land that Adonai, your God, gives you to possess it, fallen in the field, it was not known who smote him. Your elders and judges shall go out and measure towards the cities that are around the corpse. It shall be, side note, this is probably where the whole chalking and the outlining of uh, dead bodies uh, come from. So anyway, uh, it says in verse three, it shall be that the city nearest the corpse, the elders of that city shall take a heifer, which no work was done with it. Okay, so this is an unblemished heifer, like unblemished in the sense of it has not been put to um, any kind of harsh or uh, crazy labor, like it, it hasn't borne a yoke of any kind. And it, okay, because it says it in the next part of this verse, says, which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a harsh valley. Say the word valley. Okay, because remember Mashiach's uh, Akedah did not take place on on the top or the peak of a mountain, we shall say, which we're used to seeing the, the whole three crosses on top of a giant hill and all that kind of stuff. Well, you need to know it wasn't done on the top of a hill for one thing, how are people going to read that sign if Yeshua is all the way up a hill and people are walking down by the street? Second of all, uh, in antiquity, the Romans were very, very like in your face with everything. And uh, they would have basically crucified Yeshua at about eye level. So you know how we have a mezuzah on our door and we walk by the mezuzah and we kiss it? That would have been about the proximity of Yeshua. Like, so we would have been able to walk by on this main street in and out of the city. And we would have been able to see him. And he would have been about eye level or a little higher. And so that gives the whole mezuzah look a whole new thing. Because why the mezuzah is all about Memtet. Because Memtet, who is called the angel of Hashem the voice of Hashem, i.e. the manifestation of Hashem, that is Yeshua. And so Shaddai, which is what the the little the letter Sheen on the mezuzah stands for, Shaddai is a name of God and it is also the gematria of Memtet when you spell it out. So it's related. And Yeshua is called the door, right? Like no one comes to the Father except through the sun so like we have to enter in through him and so when we kiss the mezuzah on our entering and our leaving we're like basically remembering we're being transported from one place or one dimension so to speak to another 
because we're going from a public domain to a private domain. And remember, your home is like the most holiest place. In Judaism, the home is the center and the rock bed of spirituality. You go to shul, yes, but it's actually you're you're supposed to put all of your focus on the home. So the home is like that's the cream of the crop, you know. So this would be technically like a, uh, for lack of a better terms, like a holy place or a holy of holies. Actually, call it the holy place because the bedroom of the husband and wife is considered the holy of holies, which is why on Arab Shabbat. We're considered to go into the Holy of Holies because that's the time for the the husband and the wife to be together. So you have Mezuzot and you have the whole fact that in the temple and the tabernacle as well, that these areas were screened off by what's called veils or parochites. And so where the parochites are is where we have our door frames now in our homes these days. And this is also a place where we put a mezuzah. So furthermore, uh, that Hebrews actually brings down that we have we enter into service of God through a new and living way, namely through the body of Messiah, comparing him and likening him to the veil. So when the veil was torn and Messiah was crucified, that whole thing. Okay. so swerved all the way back off but anyway that's the whole thing on the valley so let's get back to our verse we're still in verse four uh okay so the calves so let's go back verse four i am so overwhelmed right now okay so the elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to a harsh valley which shall not be worked and shall not be sown and they shall decapitate the back of the calf's neck in that valley. Okay, I was just basically looking up here the word for um, decapitate. Ve'arfu sham. Okay, so basically the word arufa is the decapitation. So, yeah. And then it says... Um, you know what? I want to do a quick word study on that. This is Devarim 21.4. So let's get those coordinates down. Do a little Bible hub action. Alright, so let's get the goods. Because it's always one thing to like look up the Hebrew of everything that we want to make sure that we don't uh, English size this thing. All right. So going into on Bible Hub, it is actually going to be in. I shall come near. Shall bring them down into a valley. Okay, yeah, it is 21.4. Okay, it's 21.4. Okay, so breaking the neck. Strong's word 6202 uses the word orif, which is actually a part of a midrash on paro. Because if you spell orif backwards, it is paro, which is pharaoh. And pharaoh was known for being stiff-necked. 
And so basically, right off the bat, when we understand the meaning of breaking this calf's neck, is we're removing the stiff-neckedness, we're removing the wickedness, we're removing Pharaoh, namely the one who keeps us in bondage, slavery, sin, and death. Uh, okay, so it's literally used in Shemot 13, 13, first use, talking about redeeming every firstborn of a donkey, which again, donkeys are likened to Egyptians and um, basically people of hedonistic mindset because the word donkey is from the word for materiality. And so the firstborn of materiality, we have to make sure that we redeem, like bring it over into holiness, kedusha, like sanctify it. We got to redeem it with the lamb. So that's literally the first use of the word for neck, which is all about what we're doing here with this uh, calf. So, okay. So this valley is also supposed to be a valley that is not uh, planted. Hence why the garden tomb idea is Mashiach was basically crucified in that proximity, but not necessarily in the garden. So it was close enough to where they could literally take his body down and carry him across and put him in the garden. Uh, so that there's something to that because remember sin originally happened in the garden and our death started from the garden. And so Mashiach's death ultimately ended in the garden, but then from that garden, new life for all mankind began because of his resurrection. So as Shaul Hashliach, Apostle Paul has put it. Through one man, sin entered into the world, namely the first Adam. But through the second Adam, life and life everlasting entered in. So, continuing on, verse 5. The Kohanim, the offspring of Levi, shall approach for Hadonai, your God, cho uh, chosen to minister to him. And to bless with the name of Adonai and according to their word shall be every grievance and every plague. All the elders of that city who are nearest the corpse shall wash their hands over the decapitated calf in the valley. Say wash their hands over. Okay, so they're going to wash their hands. Literally, Yerchatzu. At Yedehim al, like above or over, Ha'egalah, Ha'arufa. Okay? So, in other words, this hand washing is going to take close proximity to this offering. Now, notice I keep calling it an offering because the teachings of the Talmud is going to bring this down in just a second. It says, They shall speak up and say, Our hands have not spilled this blood and our eyes did not see. Atone for your people, Yisrael, that you have redeemed, O Adonai. So who's going to make the atonement? Adonai. 
How does he make the atonement? Through the washing and through the confession. You ever want to know why you must be immersed for the remission of your sins? You also must confess with your mouth. This is why that atonement process is connected to the washing and the cleansing and the confession. Okay. Or in the, uh, in the sacrifice. Okay. See so the atonement, the confession, the washing, the sacrifice. Which is really, really interesting because the offering, the atonement, and the confession, the sacrifice, that is conversion, by the way. So the uh, proselytism in the Talmudic periods brings down that there are three stages to a halakhic Jewish conversion. Well, there's technically four because in order for you to get to a place of conversion, you first of all have to uh, forsake idolatry. So the moment you say Hashem and I want to serve you, that's the first step, even though it's not the first step, because how are you going to get to the rest of the conversion? Because if you're a man, you're supposed to get circumcised and then you're supposed to undergo a mikvah and then you're which is commonly known as a baptism. But the baptism is not technically a mikvah. So, uh, yeah, there's that. And literally the word for what you do in a mikvah is called immerse, which is tavel, which is why you would see the phrase tevila mikvah. So you're supposed to get brit milah, tevila mikvah, which brit milah circumcision, tevila mikvah, immerse in a mikvah. And you're supposed to bring a korban, like a sacrifice. So when you do that, because that's what Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai, that's where the conversion process comes from. So when Abraham and Sarah were converting all the souls that they had made, as it says in Parsha Leklaka, back in Sefer Bereshit, that's what they were doing to people. They were getting all the men circumcised. Women are naturally circumcised. So high five to y'all or not high five because of Shomer Nagia, but air high five. And then, um, you know, you got the the fact that you would immerse. And I would say, where in the world did these people immerse? Well, if they were near natural bodies of water, like per se the Jordan, that's cool. But you have to know Midrashim, especially Targum, Ankelos, OG Ankelos, brings down the rock that traveled with Bnei Yisrael in the wilderness also traveled with Abraham and Sarah. So this is the place where the water came out for Hagar and Yishmael, because that rock also made sure everybody had stuff to drink. So this rock created literally rivers of living water. And it was a body of water big enough for people to literally immerse in. It wasn't just like a little faucet that, oh, you want a glass of water? Here you go. Because, you know, if you give a glass of water to even someone thirsty, you, you've done it to me. Because even to the least of these, you've done it to me, as Messiah says. And Shaul Hashliach also said that the rock that traveled with our forefathers in the wilderness, that rock was Messiah. So that's from the Agarit Corinth. The writings to the Corinthians, he brings that down. So, all right. So we got the confession, and it says Hashem. So finishing out verse eight and nine here. This is the end of Parsha Shof team. Shlomo Ishpela, you have probably one of the most ridiculous 
parashas that you were born into. So that's that's great. Uh, side note, I just want everybody to know, if you don't know yet, that uh, everyone's born during a specific Torah portion. And so this would be your birth Torah portion, which if you study it, you'll find out things about yourself and hopefully answer any uh, questions that you've ever had about what should you do? Why am I here? Why do I exist? It should give you purpose. Anyway, back to the point. Do not place innocent blood in the midst of your people, Yisrael. Then the blood shall be atoned for them. Again, more atonement. Guess what the word is? Kaper, like kippur. Okay. And then it says, but you shall not, or but you shall destroy the innocent blood from your mist when you go or when you do what is upright in the eyes of Adonai. You shall destroy the innocent blood from your mist. Okay. So I'm going to start off with some commentaries. So let's start it with this blood atonement here. So it says words from on high. This is on page 337 in the green humash. It says the Kohanim mentioned above would say the words at the beginning of the Pasuk. Atone for your people Israel." That you have redeemed, O Adonai, do not place innocent blood in the midst of your people, Yisrael. But they did not have to say our phrase, then the blood shall be atoned for them. These words were declared by Ruach HaKodesh, the Divine Spirit. The Torah guarantees that whenever the Egla Arufa is brought properly, the blood of the victim will be atoned for. Sota 46a. When the Egla Arufa is brought, the blood of the victim will be atoned for. I.e., let's go to Matthew 27. And I could read the whole thing, but this is already a lot of information. So let's just get right down to the point. 27 verse 24 when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing but instead a riot was starting he took some water and washed his hands where in front of the crowd where the one who would be offered in a very crazy manner uh, i.e. a crucifixion he washed his hands right there says, I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, you see to it yourselves. Verse 25, all the people answered and said, his blood be upon us and our children. All right. So here's the deal. Here is the deal. There's a footnote on I'm innocent of this man's blood. It literally says this righteous blood or this righteous man's blood. What is so important to know about the blood of Azotic? It brings atonement. So this is why we talk about the death of the righteous bringing atonement in Jewish literature. There's all sorts of sources for that. 
Okay. Um, I got to keep moving though. All right. So let's take it down to uh, the commentary on verse 9. It says the neck. Because you got to know that the stiff neckness, which is represented by the neck in this case, because it's a neck that's broken. And uh, we should not be people of stiff neck. We should definitely have our necks in bowed positions before Shem. We should definitely, you know, keep level headed about things. We shouldn't be unbending about, you know, our service to God and uh, forsaking a life of sin and, and things like that. So the stiff neckness has got to go. So about the neck here, it says, but you shall destroy the innocent blood from your midst. Again, I'm still on page 337. You guessed it. It says one of our one of the four methods of execution available by the court is hereg, which means death by the sword. And it says, which is the punishment for a murder? However, notice that Yeshua was speared, you know, on his side. He was also pierced with hammer and nails and hung on a post. And I want to point out that in Parsha Kitetse, that the wayward and rebellious son and how all the commentaries talk about it did happen and it didn't happen. And in the Kitetse GT on my podcast, I talked about that. Yes, it did. And it didn't happen. And this is why I say yes, because it actually took place with Mashiach because Mashiach was literally offered up as if he was a wayward and rebellious and gluttonous son. Did he not get accused of being a glutton and a drunkard? Did he also not get accused of being a blasphemer? And was he not hung on a pole and considered to be a curse of God? Did not Shaul Hashliach even write about Mashiach's body being on the tree and that it, he who hangs on a tree is a curse to God? Like he quoted Parsha Kitetse. So side note, Shaul studied Torah portions. Just say lie on that for a second, because many people say Shaul, uh, because of his writings and his commentaries, he was not Torah observant. Well, I'll tell you what, no one who is not Torah observant. So, so no unobservant person is going to sit around and study Torah portions and then give droshes on them. I'm just saying, if you're going to drosh on a Torah portion, if you're not studying the Torah, you will be uh, Torah observant and studying the Torah. Like, if you're not being observant already, you will come to, just like the sages say, Pirkei Avot, one who starts to serve Hashem out of improper motives, in the end will serve Hashem with proper motives. It's just going to happen. It is inevitable. Which is why the whole reason why in that day, his name will be one. Hashem will be one and his name will be one. Talking about the Elenu, talking about the end of days entering into the Alam Haba, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is why ultimately everyone will become observant before Hashem. Everyone's going to keep the Shabbat. Everyone's going to keep Sukkot. Everyone's going to know about Rosh Hodesh. Now, what else is going to be going on outside of that? I have no idea. And I go back and forth with myself going, you know, do I want to know? Because what about everyone who like doesn't want to be Jewish, but they love God? 
it's just like, well, where are they going to be? Because they're not going to be in the new Jerusalem, i.e. heaven. Because that's the picture of heaven that everyone talks about, which is why you have to know heaven's going to be in Israel. And the whole world is going to be made into Israel one day. However, Jerusalem will be set apart and that's where the righteous are going to be. So that's why the, there's the gates. And if you're an idolater, if you're an impure and licentious person, if you're... Uh, any kind of sin, which means you don't like Torah stuff and you violate Torah, then you won't be able to get into that city. However, you will be able to make Aliyah to that city for Sukkot. And so that's interesting because Zechariah talks about that. But anyway, um, yeah, we just need to know. Mashiach, going back to the death here by the sword, those nails and that spear are actually related in Hebrew to the word for sword because the word for spear is ramak. And then you got the word for um, the stake itself as being a stick, like a tree, which is staros. And then you got the nail, which is a tent peg. And that's related to so many other things in the Hebrew. But anyway, I just wanted to bring out the point that this is one of the death penalties of a murderer. And so Yeshua died as if he was a murderer, which is funny because he had a thief and a murderer next to him on the crucifixion stake. And the people in Matthew 27 said, we want Yeshua bar Abba, Yeshua son of the father, because yes, Barabbas, that's what his name is in the Aramaic Hebrew. It is literally Yeshua, the son of God. Or son of the father, Slika, which you can go ahead and say son of God because God is the Abba. But anyway, he was a murderer and they let him go. So Yeshua died in the place of a murderer, even though he was not a murderer. So this is, again, why the whole rebellious son that's talked about at the beginning of Parsha Kitetse happened, but it didn't because Yeshua really wasn't a glutton. He surely wasn't a drunkard. He surely wasn't wayward and he surely wasn't rebellious. However, he died with all that happening to him. So it still upholds the fact that no one has ever seen that trial take its full effect. But yet we saw it. So now we can understand more about the paradox about he who knew no sin became sin and reconciled us to Hashem. So there's all that. And Yeshua didn't really die. And then there's all that. But he died in the sense of whatever needed to be satisfied for death to be tacooned, uh, rectified, basically, or repaired. That that much happened for sure. The separation of the body and the soul, which is ultimately what death is like when when your soul and your body are disconnected. So Yeshua died that way. However, his body did not operate like a normal corpse because there was no impurity given off of it. And we're going to learn why in just a second. OK, so let's finish this point here about the neck, though. However, we do not know if the murderer is stabbed like speared in the side and blood and water come out or beheaded or otherwise cut or maybe as I'm going to input pierced. Okay. So that all is around the one of the, 
one of the four methods of execution is by the sword and it's like well we could stab them we could behead them or otherwise cut them which piercing and spearing could definitely fit underneath that umbrella it also says our pasuk tells us to execute the murderer if he is found after the egla arufa is killed this is why after yeshua is offered He's buried, he's resurrected. This is why ultimately the murderer, which by the way is the evil inclination, known as the Yetzahara, known as the angel of death, known as the, the Satan. This is why he's going to be killed in time to come. Because when that murderer is found, even after this offering, you can still kill them. And it says, comparing the killing of the Egla Arufa to that of the murderer. So our pasuk tells us to execute the murderer if he is found after the Egla Rufa is killed, comparing the killing of the Egla Rufa to that of the murderer. Wow. And then it says, just as the Egla Rufa is killed by cutting its neck, so too all murderers are killed by cutting their necks through beheading. Ketubot 37b and Sanhedrin 52b. See, it's stuff like this that I was just kind of like, oh my gosh, like this is so much. It goes on to say about the beheading, it says, our pasuk referring to the murderer says, teva er, which means you shall destroy the innocent blood from your mist. A form of this word is used in a pasuk describing the death penalty for zomemin witnesses, which is who plan to have someone executed for murder. So, you shall destroy the innocent blood from your midst. It says this is also used in a death penalty for witnesses who plan to have someone executed. Which is, uviarta, you shall destroy the evil from your midst. A comparison of like verses, which is called Gezera Shavah, connects the two passages teaching that just as our pasuk discusses a case where the calf is beheaded so to the execution of the zomemin the witnesses is done by beheading this is Yerushalayimi Sanhedrin 7.3 the previous pasuk says that after the egla arufa is brought the blood shall be atoned for them this seems to mean that the egla arufa atones for everyone Say it with me. Everyone in Hebrew known as Kolechad. It says, even the murderer, if he is later identified. Even the murderer gets atoned for. This is why, everyone, we cannot be mad at the forces of evil. This is why we can't hate our enemies. This is why we can't gloat and get all excited at the downfall of our enemies. Because even the mercy of Hashem extends to them. This is why we pray for our enemies. Yeshua brought this out because part of the inner dimension of the Torah is that we do not despise those who are um, our oppressors. We should pray for them. This is another reason why in Parsha Kitetse, it talks about accepting the Egyptian and uh, accepting the... Uh, 
the different nations into our community. You know, that the Egyptians, namely, is why I brought this point up, because they threw us in the Nile, you know, like, that's not cool. They murdered us. And Hashem was like, yeah, but they also embraced Yosef as king, and they made home and space for you in Goshen, and, you know, you got to kind of thrive there. You know, you kind of, you thrive so much by their hospitality, because they let you stay in their land, even though you could have went back to Israel, but, but we ain't going to talk about that, but they gave you so much hospitality that you literally outpopulated them in their own nation. So we'd be nice to them in other words. So anyway, just a little point there, pray for your enemies. We should definitely know that people who slander us and mock us, like when they are so fixated upon doing that to us, they are becoming our slaves because that's all they can think about. And at that point, remember, we're only supposed to be slaves to Hashem. So literally, we should try to kick them out of bondage, which is what our prayers will do. So if we're interceding for those who are slandering us and who are mocking us, like that's what's going on. And it's really hard to be slandered if you don't have an ego. So the more we get rid of our own ego, there's also that we can pray for more people. Okay, so Hashem help us all with that. That is absolutely insane. Okay, last point. Our Pasuk teaches that this is not so. It says that anyone who spilled innocent blood shall be destroyed from your mist, which teaches that if witnesses identify the murderer after the Egla Arufa is brought, he must be brought to justice. Yerushalayim Sota 9.6. Okay, let's get to the point that this is an offering. Because again, this is bringing atonement. All right. And notice, even though we have offerings that are forms of atonement, which are all based off of the Akedah, which is why the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, which is ultimately where the lamb was slain in our place, the ram of God. Which, by the way, the ram is Ha-Ayil, which rearranges to Elohai, which is my God. So literally, my God was bound and sacrificed and killed in my place. That's why we call it the Akedah, and that's why we know that is the source of all atonements. So Yeshua literally, pun intended on all levels, fleshed that out. This is why his death is like the pinnacle of what we know is the Basora message, you know, not that the Basora message is only about that. It's about so much more. It's literally about flesh being renewed because the fact of his flesh dying, being put back in the ground, which by the way, is the ultimate atonement for sin, because we give back to the earth that which we stole and took upon ourselves to make us uh, basically be underneath the sentence of death. And it, we also give the food to the one who tempted us ultimately, which is a serpent. Remember, the food of the serpent is supposed to be the dust of the earth. So we give him back everything that he and put into us. So we get all of the sin out of us through death and burial. But Yeshua took it to the next level because had that been there, that would not have been enough. 
because now how do we justify continuing to live for God, continuing to grow spiritually, continue to bring salvation and redemption into the world? You got to have the resurrection because that's the power that actually operates within us who literally grab a hold of the word of God and walk it out every day, moment by moment. So it takes that resurrection. If he didn't resurrect, there wouldn't be any power. There wouldn't be any way for us to see this information, to glean this information, to even pray, to even do Torah study, to even do acts of kindness like that power would be lacking. And so we would just be like, oh, we got cleansed and purified. OK, well, until I have oh, just did it, I had a false thought. I had a. I got distracted or I said something I shouldn't have said and all of, oh no, I'm back again. You know, and you put yourself back under sin, death and sickness and all that kind of stuff. So is had it not been for the resurrection, we wouldn't have a perpetual atonement to cleanse us and purify us, to continue to sanctify us, to deliver us from death and into life, take us out of darkness and into his light. And this process is gradual until the ultimate time that our bodies will undergo the transformation from the mortal to the immortal, which is what's going to happen at the final redemption. This is why in Thessalonians, Shaul Hashliach talks about, boy, I'm just Sha Shaul quoting all day tonight. But uh, anyway, he talks about that those who are dead in Messiah, those who have sleep on, those who have fallen asleep in Messiah will be resurrected to immortal life first, or eternal life first, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up with them and change in the twinkling of an eye. By the way, the change in the twinkling of an eye in Judaism is known as popping into your light body. Literally, uh, those of us who walk in so much refinement and really subduing our evil inclination, our evil desires and transforming them and really, you know, cleansing our hearts and getting rid of our ego. Like when that moment occurs for the twinkling of an eye to happen, we will be those people who change like like pop into our light body, as they call it. So anyway, that's important for you to know. That was brought down by the Geula Summit that happened with Hana Shifra in uh, Gateway. Uh, I think I forget what the name of the. Let me see. Pull, pull up my pull up my handy dandy notebook uh, because you got to hear about this. Let's see. It is called. Uh, gate of unity it's far from gateway <laughs> okay gate of unity so uh this again this is hana or shifra hana hendry okay so you can check her out she does amazing stuff i will i will tell you right now my disclaimer is it's kosher but it's 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 out there in other words uh it's going to be like making a cat skydive. There's a, a, a famous uh, gif that you can search. That's a skydiving cat. And it's a cat with a parachute that's been, I guess, thrown out of a plane. And the cat is like free falling until the parachute gets deployed. And that's what it's like with with uh, Shifra over here. This is ridiculous. So if you're ready for that, that's cool. Okay, 
So now, let's get to the offering part. It says, atone for your people, Israel. Lessons from atonement. This is on page 336. You can see I'm not getting very far in this green book over here. It says, one, our, our pasuk says that the Egla Arufa brings atonement for, or Slika, brings atonement, which is the term used in connection with offerings in the Beit HaMikdash. First of all, Egla Hazahav is the way you say the golden calf. Egla Arufa is the way you say the decapitated calf. So the key uh, similar word, by the way, is calf. And so you have a picture of the golden calf being demolished. The destruction of idolatry, basically. This is what Mashiach's body also became on the crucifixion stake. It became the epitome of the golden calf, which is everything that we input and everything our mouths have spoken out. In other words, crucify him, crucify him. He deserves to die. He blasphemed. Da, 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 da. Remember our words have power, right? And so they, they make manifest reality. So anything that we accused flesh like mankind of, Yeshua took that on as well as our slanders and mockeries and insults and slurs. So he became what the golden calf was because the golden calf was made out of the same sinful speech and offering. So we gave our goal, we gave our lust and our desires, all of that, and then the golden calf came forth. So here, another picture of why we decapitate a calf is because it destroys idolatry. It removes that from us. Hence the word atonement. So now we know this is an offering because it's used as an atonement and it's connected to the offerings of the Beit HaMikdash. This teaches us numerous lessons. Number one of four. Number one. Everybody say number one. Number one, Aleph. Just as an offering may be brought at any time during the day, but not at night. So to the Egla Arufa is brought any time during the day, but not at night. Megillah 21a. This is why Yeshua, everything had to go down during the daylight hours and had to be done before sundown. Obviously, go to Kitete for a moment, where the way we're going to your son, his body's put up on a pole, but it has to be taken down because it can't be left up overnight because it will uh, curse the name of God. It will bring uh, defilement and defaming to his name. So obviously there's that. So it kind of works all together. So connect all these dots. All right. Number two, bait. Okay. It says, just as it is forbidden to have any benefit of an offering, so too it is forbidden to benefit from the Egla Arufa. Avoda 29B and Kiddushin 57A. So you're not supposed to have any benefit from it. So this is why it was like, we got to get his body. We got to make sure nobody steals it and does crazy things with it because there's so much Kedusha coming off Yeshua's body. It's like taking a piece of the broken sapphire tablets and just like chanting with it, using it to do all sorts of crazy stuff that you can do because what was uh, contained in the sapphire tablet chunks, you know, 
there's a midrash that brought brings down that those pieces were taken back to the tent of Moshe and he was super rich because of them. Anything he needed to get, he was able to get it because he had the pieces of the broken tablet. So if there's all this uh, insight surrounding pieces of the broken tablets, the sapphire tablets, that is, how much more so with the quote unquote pieces of the body of Messiah? This is why there's all these conspiracies. Oh, his disciples took it. They wanted people to know he's still alive. Da, 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 da. And somebody went to the grave and stole it. And that's why they roll that giant boulder in front of it, just like the giant boulder that was rolled over the well and uh, the place where Yaakov had to go to find his wife, you know, when he found Raquel and, you know, the shepherds were like, OK, when everybody gets here, we're going to take this boulder off the well and get this water out of the well, you know, and Yaakov was able to push it over by himself. Same picture here with Yeshua, because Yeshua is living water, remember? So literally the living water was caught up in a cave in a quote unquote well of some sort, a rocky place containing water that was covered with a rock. And so who was going to roll that rock away? Obviously Hashem. So anyway, little uh, Midrash overlay on that, that the, uh, oh, and you need to know when Yaakov rolled away this water, they didn't have to reach down into the well to pull up the water. The water rose up by itself. This is why when that rock unrolled from Yeshua's tomb, he rose up from himself. Because remember, Hashem is the one who exerted the spirit in Mashiach Yeshua to raise him from the dead. But remember, Yeshua is a manifestation of Hashem. So it's like Yeshua or is it Hashem resurrecting himself? And the answer is yes. Okay, because Yeshua says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. And I guarantee you, if he's able to lay his own life down willingly, he's also able to raise it up. But Yeshua says, I only have power through my father. Like in other words, apart from my father, I can do nothing. You can search that out. That's in the writings of Yochanan. So, in other words, how was Yeshua able to be resurrected from the dead? It was only through the power of the father. What's so amazing about that? Suka 52A in the Talmud, that spooky book. Uh, it's not spooky to me. Uh, some people really call it spooky. But anyway, uh, the most amazing book I like, it says, uh, obviously, because it's a part of the Bible. By the way, did you know the Bible is split between written and oral? which is the oral now is written because we don't have a temple and it's like almost 2000 years removed from us. But because we have, you know, like Rashi's and Bahaturim's and Rambam's and Ramban's and this teaching of the Talmud, they all point us back to those oral writings. The Midrash says, Legends of the Jews, all that give us access to the other part of the Bible. So anyway, when you have your written Bible, you only have half the story. Okay, anyway, so yeah, <sighs> I was talking about the water rose up. Okay, Sukkah 52a talks about Mashiach ben David seeing Mashiach ben Yosef slain. He asked Hashem for life and life everlasting. And Hashem says, David prophesied about this. David, your father, by the way, this is a conversation that's happening before creation, Hashem and his Messiah are talking. 
And Hashem is like, David prophesied about you already. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand so I make your enemies a footstool. And talking about you asked of him life and ever, life everlasting and all that kind of stuff. So in other words, I knew, son, that you were going to talk about this because Mashiach is the son of God, which means king of Israel. Who is the king of Israel? David is the king of Israel. And that makes David the son of God. So if the son of God has a son, then that son would also be a son of God. Anyway, uh, so yeah. Mashiach ben David, ask Hashem for eternal life. And that's how Messiah ben David was able to resurrect Messiah ben Yosef. And the Kol Hator teachings of the Vilna Gaon talk about at that moment, that's when the two Messiahs become one. Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef become one. But we know in Mashiach Yeshua, he is the full package, like from conception, because he was conceived by the Ruach HaKodesh in the womb of Miriam. And the Ruach, again, is the Mashiach. So, you know, what hovered over the water in Genesis? They said is the spirit of Hashem, the spirit of God. And they say in the oral Torah, it was the spirit of Mashiach. It was the throne of glory. Where did the sapphire tablets come from? The throne of glory. The throne of glory, again, is the spirit of Mashiach. So the sapphire tablets, which is where the Torah comes from, that is the spirit of God, the spirit of Messiah. So the spirit of God, spirit of Messiah, the word of God, the Torah, written and oral, is all together. It is found in Messiah. This is why Shaul, again, goodness, don't count me on how many times I'm saying this because it's ridiculous. But anyway, this is why Shaul would say the hidden mysteries are all found in Messiah and we should be hidden in him because when we are, we're in the spirit of God, which is the Torah written in oral. Okay, so that was point number two. Don't have any benefit from the Egla Arufa. So don't be doing weird stuff with Yeshua's body. Okay, after you take it down, like put it in the grave like it's supposed to go and, and don't be doing necromancy stuff. There's don't do that. Okay. Point three. Everybody say Gimel. Okay, Gimel. All right. Uh, if you want to be real fancy, you can say Shalosh, which is three in Hebrew. Anyway, generally an animal carcass is Tame, which is ritually impure as a nevela. A nevela, slika. It's ritually, it's usually impure. It usually causes you to need to go outside the camp. It usually causes you to need to be sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. It usually causes you to miss Passover. Because remember, when was Messiah crucified? Oh, yeah, big picture. He, it was Passover. So literally, anyone who touched his body should have not been able to partake of the Passover because they would have been in an impure state. Notice Tame is about ritual impurity. It doesn't mean that necessarily you're a sinner. It just means there are certain rituals, i.e. observances you cannot, you now cannot partake of, namely eating of the Pesach. But it says here, it says generally this is the case that there's a ritual impurity. There's a Nevela. Unless it had been slaughtered properly. So they're like, so here's the deal. Generally, the carcass of an animal, i.e. if it got decapitated, it should be impure. And it will only be pure if it's slaughtered properly. Well, decapitation and kosher slaughter, two totally different things. Like, as far as Pluto is to the sun, different. If not more. 
okay maybe cosmos different anyway so that's the thing Let's check the sentence out though in our case however everybody say however we learn that just as an offering is not a novella so too the egla arufa is not tame as a novella where do we learn this from Zevakim 70b and Hulin 11a. In other words, this was not the normal way to do a sacrifice. And this is not the normal way that impurity or purity should happen. So because this is not a normal sacrifice, it should give impurity, but it's not going to give impurity, even though it's a not it's not a normal sacrifice. Okay, so got that? That's Gimel. Okay, everybody say four. Dalit. Revi E. Okay. It says, just as an offering may not be trefa, which means just like not good. Let's see what the footnote says. A trefa is an animal with one of a well-defined group of defects. That will certainly cause its death. A trefa may not be used as an egla arufa. So remember that time Yeshua was put through all those trials. And then he was handed over from governor to governor. And all that kind of stuff. And they were like, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with them. No, he's fine. I'm sending you back. You go to them. And everyone's coming up. Well, you know, Yeshua, da 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 da. It's like, no, he's that's not a that's not a crime. It's like he healed somebody on Shabbat. No, that's not a crime. He blasphemed the name of God. Okay, that's a crime. But when did he do that? He said, "Tear down this temple in three days, and I'll raise it." He's he's likening himself to God because because what you don't know here is that Judaism teaches that. If someone's the temple, then that means they're Hashem manifest. Cause, cause like all of us can't walk around and say we're the temple, even though we're called a temple, but we don't ever say that we're the temple. And, and that's what he said. Cause he said, tear down this temple. And, and he was really talking about being a manifestation of God. That's my friends, super intense. So there were no defects. And notice it says uh, an animal with one of well-defined group of defects that will certainly cause his death. So in other words, there should have been something that should have stuck to um, make Yeshua improper. But he was so spotless. He was so blemish-free couldn't nothing be done and this is why the riot had to happen i.e crucify him crucify him because how do you control a mob i mean there's only so many beanbags you can fire at people <laughs> right so and then Pilate was like you know what i'm washing my hands i'm done i'm doing the egla arufa and i don't even know what this is and it's just like well again shaul said that the nations are going to do things that are in the torah and they're going to prove to themselves that uh, they're basically uh, like they're showing their their heart of Torah that is within them. They become a law unto themselves as it is written literally in Romans 2. So let me read that verse because 
that's such a, a emphatic thing to say and to not be able to articulate it appropriately is just don't feel right. So let's go ahead and do that. They become like a law to themselves. Okay, here we go. This is 214 says for when the Gentiles, i.e. pagans, i.e. the nations, i.e. Goyim, non-Jews, for when they who do not have the Torah do by nature things of the Torah, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the Torah. They show that the work of the Torah, this is verse 15, is written on their hearts. When we read about the Brit Hadashah, which is the new covenant, what's been commonly called New Testament in error, by the way, because new covenant and new testament are two totally different things. But that's a part that's another drosh. Maybe we should do a drosh on that at some point. There's so much to talk about. Oh, I wish the redemption would happen so fast. So anyway, Baruch Abba Shemadonai. The New Testament is not right. The renewal of the covenant. Very right, because Brit Hadashah is talked about in the writings of Yahu, Jeremiah. He says that the law, the Torah, will be written on our hearts. So guess what? Pilate showed that the Torah was written on his heart because whether he liked it or not, he ended up doing the Egla Arufa observance. So without even knowing it, he did a mitzvah. And this is the beauty of not judging and shaming people who are not Torah observant and who are anti-Semitic that we don't even have to try. And before they know it, they will be doing things of Torah that express that the Torah is written on their heart because whether all mankind likes it or not, we've all been taught the Torah as a baby in our mother's womb. So we all know it. We're just playing games if we don't think we do. But I digress. So... Pilate is showing the Torah is written on his heart here, okay? And, oh, to finish my point on the other thing about not shaming people, is I'm sitting around people, or not sitting around, but I'm working around people who do things like return a lost item to the person who lost it. And they make sure it's taken care of until they can figure out whose item it was and they put it back in their possession. Like, I'm like, dude, are y'all reading Parsha Kitetse or something? Because, like, that's totally one of the 613 mitzvot. So they're showing that the Torah is written on their heart. Anyway, say lie on that. So that was Dalit, that this uh, this offering may not be a trefa, and the Eglor Arufa may not be a trefa. Even though it should technically be considered a trefa because you just decapitated a calf. Like, that is not the way to do a kosher slaughter. That's so far from a shakita blade and a cutting of the, the main artery to release all the blood and all that. It's like, no, doesn't matter. It's an offering. It's going to bring atonement. So, also it goes on to say that you have redeemed O Adonai. The term atonement is mentioned in our Pasuk. It is also mentioned in the Pasuk about the Kohen Gadol's bull, i.e. on Yom Kippur. It says, so again, Yeshua's death on Erev Pesach, the 14th of Nisan, what's going to kick off Passover, is also a Yom Kippur picture. Because on Yom Kippur, 
the high priest, the great high priest, has to bring a bull for atonement so that he can bring the Yom Kippur atonement. So he has to make atonement for himself and then he can bring atonement. So what does that mean about Yeshua since he himself is atonement? So how's atonement going to bring atonement for atonement? Anyway, so Yom Kippur and Passover all are happening right there. Because the way that Mashiach dies is also likened to the bull that the Kohen Gadol brings on Yom Kippur. Why? Because it says the term atonement is mentioned in another pasuk about the Kohen Gadol's bull. Vayikra 16.6. It says, In the confession made of the Egla Arufa, Hashem's name is used. This is why the sign above Yeshua's head as an uh, acronym, Yeshua HaMelech, ve, or Yeshua HaNotri VeMelech HaYehudim, Make the initials Yod and Hey and Vav and Hey, i.e. Hashem's name is used as a confession over, like above him, on top of him, like a sign above his head, that hey, here's Hashem. His name is used in confession over this. Anyway, says we learn from this that the Kohen Gadol should use Hashem's name in his confession on Yom Kippur, Yoma 37a. Alright, so we got the hands that get washed and all of that, right? Okay, so, um, our hands have not spilled his blood. Mm -mm -mm. Want to make sure I did not skip anything. I've been so just overwhelmed and so stirred up by this insights, man. Like I haven't even been able to <sighs> contain myself. Okay. So here's how I want to bring this to all the other connections. This is the mitzvah that Yaakov and Yosef were talking about. When Yosef went out to his brothers and they stripped him of his clothing, threw him into a pit, which is likened to cru saying, crucify him, crucify him, die. We don't want you. We reject you. You're, you're a sinner. We don't get out of here. And then ultimately when he was taken from the pit, he was handed over to the Gentiles and sold into slavery, considered dead. And not only that, but they took his garment, dipped it in blood of a goat, which is all the Yom Kippur tie-ins. And they showed it back to the father and says, recognize this garment. Is not this the blood of your, is this not the garment of your son? And Yaakov sees the garment, sees the blood on it. He's like a wild beast has torn my son. Remember the wild beast is the riotous crowd that said crucify him, crucify him. So yes, the whole picture of Joseph, like Yosef, who is a picture of Messiah Ben Yosef and the death and the being sold and stripped of his garments and killed and all that kind of stuff. He should have died, but he didn't because when Yosef was thrown into that pit, the pit was full of snakes and scorpions. And remember, the spirit of God uh, gives us the authority over snakes and scorpions. It removes them from our lives. We just talked about this in Parsha Re'e, I believe, or Ekev, one of those talking about the, de the desert. I believe it was Ekev and how the stings of the snakes and the stings of the scorpions, the venom of the snakes through the spirit of God, you know, we are given, they, they're cleared out and we're given dominion over it. 
so don't go out and stick your hand in front of a cobra and just be like, see, I'm controlled by the spirit of God. That, that would not be smart. If you see a scorpion, don't let it crawl on you and stab you. Okay, anyway, or sting you or whatever. But I'm talking spiritually and probably physical miracles uh, could happen, but we don't all, we, we are, we are not told to go out actively looking for miracles. If miracles happen, they happen, but we don't force them to happen. In other words, don't go, I'm about to jump off this building and Hashem is not going to let me dash my foot against the rock. This is why Yeshua didn't jump off the cliff when Asatan told him to. Side note, that is a picture of a sneaky way to get you to serve someone else and listen to somebody else's voice. Because if you only listen to the voice of Hashem, i.e. the voice of Messiah, Yeshua, the Torah, Spirit of God, Word of God, if you listen to that voice, uh, again, you also would not have jumped off the cliff because the moment you jump off the cliff, you now say, God, you're no longer my God, but this is my God. And then all of a sudden you're under dominion of the one who tempted you. And then you're also going to be dying because not only did you put God to the test, but you forsook God. You went into idolatry and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, back to Joseph and Yaakov. But Joseph and Yaakov were talking about this particular mitzvah. So if you can get an overlay here that the what caused Yaakov and Yosef to be separated, the father and the son to be separated. Yes, father, father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, that that came from this. This is Parsha Vayigash. Uh, this is uh, from the Midrash says page 426 talking about the uh talking about this mitzvah the egla arufa so this mitzvah separated the father and the son and it also brought them back together because it's taught that when uh, a teacher and his student depart that they must remain in the same mitzvah let's see here um let's see Um, doo, 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 doo. where did we put this at? All right, so here, let me go to page 427 real quick. This is that point about the teacher and the student. So it says, Yaakov did not believe the words. They said, Yosef is alive and all that kind of stuff. Like the sons came back and they had the wagons. He said, Yaakov did not believe their words. The punishment of a liar is that he is not believed even when he speaks the truth. Since Yaakov's sons had lied when they showed their father Yosef's garment dipped in the blood, he did not believe them now either, even though they spoke the truth. But when he heard the message Joseph had sent reminding him about the halakha concerning the egla arufa his heart was filled with happiness he felt that the ruach hakodesh which had been absent from him during the 22 years of mourning again resided with him yakov called out yosef is still alive these or his words implied yosef is still exotic he retained his piety in spite of all the suffering he underwent when Yosef's blood-stained garments was brought to me, I questioned Hashem's ways, whereas I was steadfast in Bitakon, or where I questioned Hashem's ways, whereas he was steadfast in his Bitakon, tr which is trust in Hashem, and therefore the Shekinah was with him. 
Yaakov was overjoyed to discover Yosef remained exotic, more so than Yosef had become a king. So there, the backdrop on that about he remembered the halakha is like, what was the last thing the student and the teacher talked about? When they come back together again and share that teaching that keeps them bonded and connected even while they're away. And that gives the teacher uh, affirmation of the position of the student. Like, hey, he's still he's still on the derrick. He's still good. He hasn't forgotten what he was taught. So let's take that to Yeshua. Before he left, what did he say? Go out and make Talmudim, which are go out and make disciples. Go out and make people who do the things that I taught you, which was observe the Torah. If that wasn't enough, he said, immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means mikvah them because the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three names of Hashem are in the mikvah. So, i.e., go out, convert people after teaching them Torah. So go teach Torah to everybody. Give all the divine sparks an opportunity to be gathered in. Those who have ears, let them hear kind of thing. And when they hear, convert them, bring them in. And then I'll be back. That's basically Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. So, page 426 says this. Or 425, because the paragraph starts. Yosef instructed his brothers that if Yaakov would doubt that they actually found him, they should tell him, Yosef accompanied us when we departed. Because he recalls the last halakha you taught him before he left you. The importance of accompanying a guest. Yosef said, remind your father that he taught me the subject of Egla Arufa. If a murdered person is found in the field. And the murderer cannot be found, the neck of a calf must be broken. And the elders of the nearest city assemble to declare our hands have not spilled this blood. We did not dismiss him without food or accompaniment. But do not debate over this halakha on the way. Yosef was afraid that by discussing the parasha of Egla Arufa, Devarim 21:18, the brothers might become involved in a debate about the extensive atonement required for bloodshed. So, anyway... Just to point that out, father and a son are separated through this mitzvah. And then, remember I told you this washing of the hands goes all the way back to our mitzvah of why we do the hand washing blessing in the morning. So, let me get this down from the siddur real quick. So, part of our morning blessings, we do Look at the commentary on this. It says, It says, In the case of blessings, the general rule, they should be recited in conjunction with the acts to which they apply. Nevertheless, some postpone the blessings of for washing the hands and the blessing for relieving yourself. There's a blessing you say after you leave the restroom as well. It's a blessing for everything. It says they uh, they postpone it so that they will be recited as a part of Shakari. And well, that's cool because 
if you do it that way, you end up doing a hand washing without saying anything. And it's like, okay, I'm doing this innocent of uh, guilt thing over here, and I'll talk about it later. And I pointed out that, uh, th again, this is in the uh, Parsha, or this is in the Kitetse GT Part 2 uh, podcast, that the Urkats, which is the second Seder of the uh, the Seder night, the second thing that we do, the second Siman, I should say, that we do a hand washing that we don't say a blessing for. And then we do a hand washing later that we do say a blessing for. And remember, the Seder night during the crucifixion time, the crucifixion happened. They took his body down, put it in a tomb, wrapped it in white linen, and then they went and got ready for Seder. And then they ended up doing the whole Pesach Seder. So with that being said, we all at that point caught up with what Pilate did earlier that we all wash our hands and we become innocent of the blood of the one who died. So when it comes to the hand washing over here, we also do the hand washing in the offerings section of the Shakarit and Minka service. And it says that um, this is called the shiny labor, which is Ha Kior. And it says, um, before the Kohanim could begin the temple service, they had to take sanctified water and pour it over their hands and feet. This water was drawn from the Kior laver, a large copper basin, in the temple courtyard. In preparation for verbal sacrificial service, i.e. confessions, lots of confessions, lots of prayer. And therefore we wash ourselves with water from the labor as it were, so that they not die. The offense of performing the service without washing. In other words, if you do not wash your hands, it says without washing did not incur a court imposed death penalty, but the violator makes himself liable to a heavenly punishment for his display of contempt. So in other words, without washing your hands and entering into service, you're showing contempt. That's not good. So another point to Pilate saying, I don't have any contempt for heaven. I don't have any contempt for Hashem's Corbinote, anything. I don't want my name a part of this. I'm innocent. So when we're doing our hand washing, even as we're partaking of our Seder, even as we're doing our hand washing when we wake up, and before we do uh, any other things, like when we eat bread or prayer, because when we eat bread, it's likened to partaking of the flesh of Messiah, like eating a sacrifice, so to speak. Uh, this is why we say a blessing before we eat bread. And, you know, we talk about the bread coming from the earth, literally the body of Messiah brought forth from the earth because Messiah says, I am the bread, the bread of heaven, that is. So when we eat physical bread, it's like a, a semblance of that spiritual bread. Anyway, so I have uh, a drop or a hidush. Let me start using my terms now. I have a hidush, which is an insight, a teaching, a drop from. This is Yossi Gordon. Okay, and he's bringing down some Shulchan Aruch, some Zohar, 
Um, yes. Yeah, that's what he's bringing down. Check this out. In observant families, there are certain things about which we are extremely careful. One of these things is Negel Vaser in Yiddish or Netilat Yadayim in Hebrew. Negel Vaser literally means nail water. Now, you know me and my puns. First thing I thought about was the nail in Messiah's hand. That is it any wonder that we do three times on each hand, which would make both hands be immersed three times. If we were to put our hands together, since we do three, three uh, hand washing, three immersions on each hand, that's like three times that we're immersed. Mashiach pierced with three nails, you know, so it's just kind of like, OK, so we're nailing our hands, really. And this is why. Netilat Yadayim could also mean taking the hands, i.e. we're taking up on the nail hands of Messiah. So I thought about all that, but it literally means nail water like our fingernails. But anyway, it says it refers to the observance of washing our hands directly after waking up. In Judaism, it's taught that when we go to sleep, it's a 60th of death. And when we wake up, it's like a resurrection. So in other words, we're doing like a reverse, so to speak, like we've been resurrected and now we're going to remember the crucifixion. We're going to remember that we died. And because we died, we had the opportunity to be resurrected. And so now that we're resurrected after we died, what do we do? We serve Hashem. This is why the Torah observance comes post salvation pun intended after the post after the crucifixion after the burial after the resurrection now we get into torah because without it we're taking on hands we have no idea what it means you have to know why yeshua died yes it's because of our sins but what else like he's regenerating our flesh he's nullifying the Yetzirah within us to the point that we don't have to listen to it. And furthermore, the Yetzirah works for us. So yeah, no one ever maybe have taught you that before, but your evil inclination can be used as a hired worker. Like he gonna work because his payment, he's being paid to work. Okay, that's why you've been bought with a price. So get to, get to work, right? So Yetzirah is supposed to be like the, the, the ox that pulls the plow. And the person on the plow, the person behind the handles of the plow is the Yetzirah Tov, which is that part of us that desires to do the will of God. So we have to get our Yetzirah to be an animal in a plow and not just an animal that plows us. That's the goal. And guess what? That happens through your prayer. That happens through your Torah study. That happens through your observance. That happens through your acts of good deeds. That happens as you get rid of your um, ego. So you line these things up, you get them put in check. Because the things that we that bring us pleasure, if we do them in the framework of Torah, that's going to maximize the pleasure. So... Yeah, so you can just go ahead and play that out in your imagination as far as what your pleasures are and imagine 
them being peaked up to their highest. And that's what happens when you observe Torah. You subjugate yourself to God and he gives you freedom. Interesting how that works. And I, uh, in a passing statement, was talking to my rabbi, Captain Yisrael, Rabbi Griffin, that, you know, man, I, I'm so glad to be free from the bondage of grace. He's like, did you just say bondage of grace? And I was like, yeah. You know that thing where it's like, I'm so free, I don't have to do nothing. God did it all. I don't have to do anything. It's like, yeah, that's called the bondage of grace. Because you don't have to do anything, guess what happens to you? Your Yetzahara treats you like a plow. It's just like, you're going to work for me now. You listen to what I say because you don't listen to what Hashem says. Yeah, you love people when it's convenient. And yes, you uh, exalt the name of God when it's convenient. But when my holidays come around, when my events come around, when my particular endeavors come around, God is going to go to the side. He does not have any say in what I'm going to eat. And if he does, it doesn't matter because he said I can eat whatever I want, which is it like, did he say that or, you know, or are we just saying that he said that? Because because if you read the written text and the oral text, which, again, full story is written in oral. So put them together. You don't ever see God saying eat whatever you want <laughs> anyway. Uh, and if he if you kind of can come to that conclusion some kind of way, because there are at least 70 ways to interpret the Torah. Uh, when someone comes over to your house and you tell them to eat whatever they want, do they start biting into your couch or do they eat your dog or your cat or your bird? Or do they go into the pantry or into the fridge and get like what's actual food out of it? Just saying. You go, man, I'm so glad you told me I can eat what I want. So I just, I just ate your pet. Hopefully you don't miss them that much because they were very tasty. It's just like you, my friend, are about to get extremely hurt. Anyway, back to this though. Nail water. So when we're washing our hands, it's tied to the crucifixion. It says, it refers to the observance of washing our hands directly after we wake up, which is like a resurrection. It says, one fills a cup with water and pours it on each hand, alternating between them so each hand is washed three times. The source of this custom, why do we do this? Where did this come from? Is this rules of men? No. It says, it's the process where the priest, the Kohen, would prepare himself to serve in the holy temple. Again, we just read about that. It's called Hakior in your Siddur. And then it says this verse states or the verse states Shemot, which is Exodus 30, verse 19. And Aharon and his son shall wash their hands and their feet when they come near the altar to minister. The founder of Chabad. Who founded Chabad? Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, known as the Alter Rebbe, 1745 to 1812. Wow. All right. So Chabad came from the Alter Rebbe. All this Hasidicness, which is after the Baal Shem Tov. And it says, was the author of, I'm saying after Baal Shem Tov, like the whole Hasidic and Baal Shem Tov thing. Yeah. That kind of after. Okay, so like-minded, uh, similar teaching. Okay, he was the author of the Code of Jewish Law. 
known as the Shukan Aruch, which was compiled by Yosef Haro back in 1488 through 1575, which is interesting. Because Alter Rebbe's after that. He says, here's a direct quote from his code where he refers to the service of the Kohen and its supplication in Jewish or in Jews daily morning routine. Man entrusts his soul to God at night, tired and exhausted, and God restores it to him, rejuvenated and refreshed so that he may serve his creator with all his capacity. This being the purpose of man. Therefore, we should sanctify ourselves with his holiness and wash our hands with water from a vessel before serving him and ministering to him like the priest who would wash his hands from the basin each day before beginning his service in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Rabbi Shnur Zalman later adds a Kabbalistic explanation. You ready? Our sages teach from Zohar. Here's our Zohar 1207a. That when anyone sleeps approximately a half hour, his soul departs from him and a spirit of impurity comes and rests upon him, upon his body. As soon as he awakes from sleep, the spirit of impurity departs from his entire body with the exception of his hands. It does not depart from the hands until he pours water over each hand. That is Orach Chaim 4.4. And that's from Shukhan Aruch, obviously. Says, why are we so careful to do this first thing in the morning? There are many important customs to observe in daily Jewish life. But our morning routine is the turnstile through which we go in order to get the rest of the day. This right here is the epitome of the Akedah. Just as the Akedah is the turnstile of all the Korbanot, let me give you a great definition of turnstile. Not like that I am. Okay. Because it's such a fancy word. It's a... Uh, called a baffle gate uh, as a form of gate which allows a person to pass at a time it can also be made so as to enforce one-way traffic of people and in addition it can restrict passage only to people who insert a coin a ticket a pass or similar so in other words the entry point of how are we going to do our day it all happens here the the What's the sacrifices are supposed to bring up? What are the offerings supposed to do? It's all found in the Akedah. Okay, so our hand washing is the Akedah because we also take the hands of the Akedah that were bound and we're binding them up in the three, which is the Gimel, which is like a nail pierced hand. And then, uh, yeah, you got all that going on. So at this point, if we are careful to do all the right things in the morning and to pay our dues at the turnstile, we are less likely to get caught up in troubles during the rest of the day. So, yeah, your service to God right there. Another time we wash our hands is after we eat. This is from Shodnuf Pincus, Shavile Pincus, page two, 
from 5778 uh, on Parsha Shof team. No, Kitabo, Slika. Kitabo, 5778, page 2. He says, Base Yosef, Beit Yosef, in the name of the Zohar HaKadosh Pekude 237b, requires that a segment of the calf's hair, smaller than a piece of barley, like a omer, be visible outside the casting of the tefillin in order to provide a small dose of sustenance to the forces of evil from the realm of Kedusha. This will prevent them from accusing us of wrongdoing. You know that thing where we give the Azazel goat like we place all the sand on and send it off to the wilderness and Azazel goes and catches it and all that kind of stuff. And then it's like, well, if you can bring that sand back to the camp before the other goat is offered, then, you know, I can, I can incriminate Israel, but chances are you're not going to catch up to the Azazel. And by the time you do, I'm already going to make atonement. So just like that, one of the ways we uh, bring atonement for the golden calf is through a barley size of omer or a barley size of calf hair on our tefillin so literally as we're wearing our tefillin and praying in the morning right after we've done our akidah we're doing another offering here where we're saying hey uh we're gonna take the forces of evil and give them something to uh get distracted by and while we're praying and making teshuva, we will be acquitted of wrongdoing because there will not be anyone to prosecute us at the court because they will be outside in the parking lot dealing with whatever is in the parking lot. So this is kind of a, a point of, you know, there's always one who's ready to accuse. Well, the accuser, if he's tied up with something else, I, if he's focused on the golden calf, then he can't be, you know, because it's like, why do we have golden calf hair in our tefillin? Like we're the golden calf was bad. It's like, yeah, but since he's focusing on the golden calf, which I've already made atonement for, by the way, you can now talk to me without a prosecutor in my face. Same thing happens after we eat a meal, because just like Yeshua was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, we can be because we should only eat as much as we need to eat. But sometimes the food is so good, especially the challah, that we just eat, right? And it's just like, oh, I'm so full. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And it's like you do the Birkah Hamazon. But it, one of the reasons why there's a hand washing over the fingers, over the nails, uh, after you eat is so that you can take away the accuser. You can be like, all that stuff that gets washed off your finger, namely like salt and all that kind of stuff. But the spiritual implications of the hands that were used to partake of all this is now being focused on because there's a after waters that you do. And it says this again on page two of Shavile Pincus. It is apparent that whenever we are commanded to provide the klepot, which is the forces of impurity, the accusers, uh, with sustenance from the realm of Kedusha, because by the way, if there was no holiness, then these forces of impurity could not exist. This got extremely Kabbalistic very fast. I forgot to tell everybody. Kabbalah warning. Anyway, it says it is solely where there is a significant likelihood that they will accuse us of wrongdoing. 
For example, on Yom HaKippur, HaKadosh Baruch Hu pardons us of all transgressions of the people of Israel, to which the Satan is likely to argue, how can HaKadosh Baruch Hu pardon all of the sins that they committed in the past entire year in one day? Therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded us to send the he-goat, the Azazel, as a bribe so that they would desist from presenting their allegations against us. This is why Hashem hides our sins or puts away our sins because they're out there with the Azazel and the Klepoders chasing it and it's all covered up. And it's just like, so, so you and I are talking right now, you know, so it's just like us one on one with the Shem. No sin in the room, no accusers in the room because it's all out there. Okay. And then it says, similarly, we offer those same, we offer those external forces their due by pouring water over our fingers and the Maim Akronim which is the after waters, after a meal prior to reciting Birkat Hamazon. Thus, they want to accuse us of eating and drinking for physical pleasure rather than L'Shem HaShemayim, for the sake of heaven. So with this in mind, it behooves us to explain why it's necessary to provide them with a small amount of sustenance when donning a tefillin shell rosh. Okay, so we always give the accuser something that he can pay attention to while we go talk to Hashem without him being in the room because he is not omnipresent, neither are any of the other forces of accusation. So when we sin, we create those accusers. It's just like, hey, you did this sin. This was bad. It's like, okay, so I need to go talk to Hashem about it. And if it pertains to food or anything else, like some of these different observances that we have, get those accusers fixated and focused on that. And then we can go talk to Hashem. Okay. So the last piece of information I want to bring out <clears throat> is this wedding that Yeshua took hand washing jugs and turned water into wine. So this wedding happened in um, Yochanan chapter 2. And basically it says, let me pick up here. It says, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up. This is in chapter 2, 1 through 11, Yochanan chapter 2. And then it says, uh, they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some water, draw out, or now draw some water, blah. Now draw some out and take it to the ruler of the feast. So they took it. When the ruler of the feast tasted the water, now had become wine and didn't know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the ruler of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the guests have drunk freely, then that which is worse. Or when the guests have drunk freely, then that which is worse. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Yeshua did in Cana of Galil, which is Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his Talmudim believed in him. So, Benny B is bringing this down on Parsha Shemot, 
talking about the six jugs of water, says several questions must be asked. Why does Yeshua say, my hour has not yet come? Why does John decide to include the detail on the third day? One principle and understood, one principle and understand the text of the Bible is that no word is superfluous. It is well known that a day equals a thousand years in Jewish thought. Kepha, which is Peter, Hashliach, the apostle. He paraphrases Tehillim, Psalm 90, verse 4. Don't forget this one thing, beloved, that one day without Onai as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 2 Kepha 3 8. So there's the whole thing about, you know, the third day and all this kind of stuff. It says the wedding feast is a symbol of the messianic kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage feast for his son, Matthew 22, 2 and Revelation 19, 9. And Pirkei Avot 3.16 says the judgment is true and everything is prepared for the banquet. And then the secret of wine is that um, when wine goes in, secrets come out, Sanhedrin 38a. In Hebrew, the word for wine is yayin, and the word secret, which is sowed, have the same gematria. So secret and wine both equal 70, and this is the ayin of Yeshua's name. So when you restore the wine, the secret, the 70, the eyes, the wellspring, because that's what the letter ayin represents, the eyes and the spring. When you restore that back to Yeshua's name, which is where the JC names come, the JC name comes from, or Yeshu, Chasve Shalom, uh, where that name comes from. When you restore that all together, then you can bring forth the kingdom of God. This is why it's important for us to say his name as Yeshua. So, in Parsha Yitro, in the Midrash says, on page 181, it says this, because again, we're talking about the, the water and then the place where the water comes from was used as a vessel to bring forth wine and to bring forth the beginning of the kingdom of God upon the earth through a wedding. And it says over here in Parsha Yitro, uh, the Torah portion where the Torah was given in Exodus it talks about on page 181, a thick cloud enveloped the mountain. Adonai bent the heavens down until they reached Har Sinai and his throne of glory, which is Yeshua, descended upon the mountain. His spirit as well. Remember the throne of God, the spirit of God, the Messiah of God and the Torah are all one. So that was all on top of the mountain. <clears throat> okay, so it is surprising that the Torah was not given to miss bright and dazzling lights. Like, it's showtime, everybody. You ready to be resurrected? Let's do it. It's like, no. But rather, in the midst of a mountain obscured by dark clouds, the reason for this may be understood by the following parable. See, parables are such a Jewish thing. It says, preparing for his son's wedding, the king decorated the wedding canopy with black curtains. This is not what is usually done for a son's wedding. The members of the royal household complained. 
Because remember, it was darkness up on the face of the earth from the sixth hour to the ninth hour while Yeshua's body was on the stake. And it's like, Hashem was like, yes, this is my son's wedding. But the son is dying. Okay. Anyway, and it's dark and there's earthquakes going on and all sorts of stuff. It's like, oh, you mean the same thing that happened to Mount Sinai? Yes. Okay, but I thought that was Shavuot. But it's like, yeah, so Shavuot now, as well as Yom Kippur. As well as Pesach is all happening on the 14th of Nisan where Yeshua is being crucified. The giving of the Torah, the bringing the atonement, and the delivering from slavery into freedom is all happening at one time. And this is also a wedding, which is likened to establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. It says So the custom at the wedding, though, is to hang white curtains. There is a reason for my action, explained the king. The astrologers predicted that this marriage will break up in 40 days. I do not want the people to think that I was not aware of this in advance. Similarly, Adonai did not reveal himself to Kalal Yisrael amid bright lights. Rather, he appeared in darkness and fire since he foresaw 40 days after the giving of the Torah, they would make the golden calf. So... On the page 183, the Torah itself pleaded with Hashem to restore life to B'nai Yisrael, arguing, how can the universe be happy at the receiving of the Torah if your sons die in the process? It is a cause, or is it a cause for rejoicing if a king married off his daughter at the same time kills the members of his household? And then over, let's see, there was another thing. So Hashem basically resurrected us. All right. Yeah, I didn't need to read this part. Okay. Hashem then sprinkled the dew of revival upon B'nai Israel. This was the very dew with which Adonai, or which Hashem, he will resurrect the dead in the future times. B'nai Israel, however, still felt weak from the shock that they experienced. Hashem therefore filled the air with fragrant spices. This is why Yeshua's body was also wrapped with spices, because he will ultimately be resurrected and his body is going to be strengthened and brought back to life with dew, just like at the foot of the mountain here. And it says they, they recuperated. It says, nevertheless, their fear of Hashem's voice was so great that they hastily fled to the end of the camp, a distance of 12 mil, approximately 9 miles. Adonai's angels had to transport them back to their former positions at the foot of the mountain to hear the next commandment. After the first two commandments, B'nai Yisrael were so frightened that they begged Moshe to transmit the rest of the commandments rather than hear Adonai's voice again. So this is why Yeshua stuck around for 40 days after his resurrection, because he regave all those Ten Commandments that we never got to fully hear at one time. It took 40 days to do it. At the end of that 40 days, nobody made a golden calf. So it's Baruch Hashem. I can go to the Father now until I return and you go gather in the rest of the divine sparks, just like the angels gathered you in when you ran away from my voice. But nobody's running away from my voice now because we're all ready for my voice. So go get them. I'll be right back. Don't make a golden calf, even though I'm going to give you even less time. Okay. So although Hashem had known in advance that B'nai Israel would not be able to survive hearing his voice, he nevertheless granted their original request to hear him. He did not want Kalal Israel to claim in the future, if only 
he had granted us direct revelation, we would have never served idols. So that's the thing. We get the opportunity to hear Shem's voice if we want to. So the wedding, the sun, the water, the hand washing. So that very water that we use to wash our hands is also the very secret of the Torah, the very secret of Yeshua in the Torah that we get to glean from and partake of as we await the renewal of the kingdom anew and all household being gathered in. And so it's crazy to me that the water that we use to wash our hands is a form of Kiddush because it's a sanctifying water and we, we recite and we give commandments over it. Then when we have the Kiddush on Shabbat, we have a sanctified Kiddush vessel that we drink wine from or fruit of the vine from. And then we go and do a hand washing right after that. And then we partake of the bread. And this is all a picture of the tikkun of the sin that separated us and brought us out of life and into death. And so doing all of this that we're doing now, all of the observance, all of the commandments and fulfilling them, being filled with the spirit of God, we're making a tikkun and bringing ourselves back. You know, and it's not literally that we are, but we're opening ourselves up so that Hashem is working, you know, and his spirit is drawing us back in. So the more we do this and the more people we have doing this with us, the more and the more the world begins to be truly inaugurated with the kingdom. Just like Yeshua here, it says his Talmudim began to realize and that's what's happening. We're softly rolling out the final redemption. It says here, this beginning of his signs, Yeshua did. So we're beginning that. And so as we keep the Shabbat, we do the Kiddush, we do the hand washing. Every day we're doing the hand washing, remembering the death, burial, and resurrection. And this is probably why Shaul, one more time before we end, this is why he said you've been immersed in Yeshua's death and raised to life with him. That is what your hand washing is. That's what your kiddush is. So this is all the Egla Arufa, the crazy offering that brings us atonement that should be uh, something that we are totally to blame for and something that's just totally not even right. But yet Hashem is like, because I said and because of all of these implications, this is what you reunites the father and the son. This is what brings redemption to the whole house. And the whole world is the household of God. This is why all of us live in him. We have our being and our very existence in him. We're all in Hashem. And so we're all taught Hashem in the womb. And then we're born and we have the privilege and the opportunity to live life. And will we live? Will we live it for God, or will we live it for ourselves? That's our choice, and that's the the beauty about God is that He's not going to force us to choose Him, but we have the opportunity. And so, just as we're hand washing, and just as we're gleaning from the Torah portions, and just as we're partaking of the Shabbat, partaking of bread. And, uh, you know, demolishing our accusers and things like that. 
we're we're returning to God, and that's what we ultimately need. We need to make this world a dwelling place for Hashem. We need to hasten the final redemption, and the more we make tikkun, which is repairs in ourselves, and our lives, and our families, and our homes, and the world, and our communities, that brings the final redemption. So we can literally get to a point where we're in the final redemption, and it's just kind of like we didn't even notice because we were manifesting it so much through our own free will that Hashem was like, oh, well, since you got it, here you go. Because you notice in Yochanan chapter 2, it never said Yeshua did anything to the water. He just said, all right, fill the water jugs up and go take a cup to the to the ruler of the feast. And when the ruler of the feast drank it, it was wine. And this, oh, and the one last thing before my last thing is that the reason why this was brought up for Parsha Shemot, even Benny B was commenting on everything and re bringing down sources. He was saying Ben Burton, Ladder of Jacob, that is Benny B. Okay, so Ladder of Jacob, check him out. Um, he was saying that remember back in Egypt, one of the first plagues, the plague of blood, all the vessels and things that people would drink out of, they all turned to blood. And if they put water in a cup, they would drink the water and it would be blood. And it's just like, but it was water until they drank it and it was blood. It was the opposite for Israel. So they would pick up a cup of blood and it would turn into water so that they can drink it. So Yeshua right here is like, well, you're going to pick up a cup of water. And when you drink it, it's going to turn into wine. So like that's that whole connection. So when we're doing our hand washing, it's also turning into wine because it's turning into that secret. It's turning into that letter missing from Yeshua's name, which is going to bring that revelation that's missing in the world. Because many people don't know Yeshua as Yeshua and they refuse to call him that. But when we're all immersed in his name, when we're all immersed in his death, which is the, the hand washing, then we will know and then we will proclaim and then we will see. So may it be soon in our days. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Baruch atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher natan lanu Torah temet. Vechaye holam natabetokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai. Noten haTorah. Amen. May you be inscribed and sealed in the book of life in the name and in the merit of Mashiach Yeshua. May you have a blessed and wonderful rest of Elul and into Rosh Hashanah. And may Hashem grant that we be sealed and inscribed for a good year.